applications. You see, friends, Psalm 23 has been labeled the minister's multi-tool. We are so familiar with this psalm because it is so applicable to many different situations. You're familiar with it. I'm familiar with it. Some of you have memorized it. The popularity of this psalm has gone before us, and it, it is so relevant for different circumstances and all types of people. Alexander McLaren stated that this sunny little psalm could take the place of many large books. Willem van Gemmeren shows how it's different for many types of applications. He said it's for parents who survive the folly of rebellious children. It's for people returning from war. And it's even for, uh, for someone recently out of jail. Psalm 23 could be the best love chapter in all of the Bible, maybe even the Psalms. Maybe the best known one. I've witnessed people on their deathbeds utter these words as the last words that they ever spoke on this earth. You know how popular the psalm is. You may have studied it several times, and you maybe you are so familiar with it, but I'm praying that though something may be familiar to you, it does not cease to be a blessing and relevant to what you are going through today. So if you are here today, I want to tell you that with whatever you are going through, with whatever, you are, whatever is happening in your life today, Psalm 23 is so relevant. For you Christians here today, you may be going through suffering, through illness, through deep difficulty, through trials in your family, in your workplace. Whatever it may be, Christian, this psalm is meant to encourage you. And if you're a non-Christian here today, guess what? This psalm is for you too. This psalm is meant to remind you or to tell you that there is a good shepherd. That you, like sheep, have gone astray. That you are in need of a savior. Savior, you need to know the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the good shepherd that wants to save you. And we see that even in the truth here in Psalm 23. And so if you look at Psalm 23 with me, if you look at that heading, which is part of Scripture, it says it's a Psalm of David. And we're familiar with King David. We know King David has uh, experience not just as a king, but experience as a shepherd. So if anyone has uh, a reason to write a Psalm all about being a shepherd, King David could do this because he knew what the needs of the sheep were. He knows the responsibilities of a shepherd, and he integrates that all throughout these six verses in this psalm. In the context here, we don't know exactly what the context is, but many have suggested several different things. Maybe he's running away from his son, Absalom, which would be a terrible thing to experience being persecuted by your own son. And maybe this is the setting, and he's going through some sort of hardship, and he is in the midst of this hardship, he has this great confidence. Great confidence that in his difficulty, Yahweh or God is his shepherd. That he is delivering him in the midst of the difficulty. That even though the suffering is continuing, even the trials are happening, maybe while he is penning this, he still believes that God is providing and preserving. And that's what we can take from this today. And so I want to just outline our time into just three simple parts, three encouragements, very simple, three encouragements for today 
First of all, the shepherd provides care in verses 1 through 3. Second of all, the shepherd provides comfort in verses 4 and 5. And then the shepherd provides confidence in verse 6. I'll repeat these as we go. Look with me in verses 1 through 3, how the shepherd provides care. Look at verse 1 with me. The first way that he provides care is care through supplied needs. Look at verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. Did you know we can camp out on this verse for the rest of the next... PJ, you preach for what, three hours, right? Um, So I have some time here. And we could just stay here for the next three hours or something. Because the, 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 the verse here is really what sets the tone for the rest of this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh himself, the, the covenant God who protects and provides, is David's shepherd. Look at the language here. He says, my shepherd. It's a personal way of describing God. David doesn't deny that God is a God of groups and that he's a God of Israel. But he's going through, th- so, through something so difficult that he's trying to remind himself that his God is a personal God. He's not just Israel's God. He is my God. He is my God in the midst of trials. He is my God in the midst of suffering. And so this main thought, everything stands on this and flows from this. Calling God a shepherd could either be a reference to him being characterized as a shepherd or continually acts as a shepherd to David. Actually, it doesn't matter because that word is just saying that there's never a time where God is not shepherding his people. And that's encouragement to you today, right? Because if you doubt what God is doing in your life, don't forget that there is never a time where God is not shepherding you. The imagery here uses the imagery of a shepherd. And if you don't know anything about the background of a shepherd, especially back then, uh, being a shepherd was the job for the lowest of low. They would choose in their family the youngest son to be a shepherd who would feed and care for the sheep. His concern was always just for the welfare of the sheep. So it was an unending job, 24-7 with the sheep. Summer and winter, good good or bad weather, it was dangerous too because the shepherd would have to protect the sheep and be brave enough or tough enough to kill wild animals that threaten the sheep. No one would choose to do this job. You guys remember that one old show, Dirty Jobs, with Mike Rowe from uh, Discovery Channel, where he would go and he would, he would do those jobs that no one wants to do, like uh, diving into sewers or like you know, picking up animal manure. He would go do these jobs to, that, that just no one in society would want to take up. Being a shepherd would probably be under dirty jobs. No one wanted to do this job. But David doesn't present God taking this job like that. God is described as joyfully and and, and happily taking this position as a shepherd over his people. He is not reluctantly our shepherd. He is joyfully our shepherd. And what a beautiful truth to know that God chooses to shepherd us with joy. Look at the second half of that first verse. I shall not want or I have what I need, as you see it in your translation. Just a reference. Literally, I will never lack. Pointing to the fact that God promises to provide all necessities and everything that we need as his sheep. What an encouragement, especially in this season, right? 
because we're in this time where we're thinking about economic turmoil, we're thinking about World War III, World War IV, whatever it is, and we're wondering if, if God is going to provide. God, will you be providing in my situation right now? Maybe you, you might be here and you're asking, you're asking God that right now, and it's so encouraging to hear this promise that echoes Matthew chapter 6. Right? That, that God provides for the birds, he clothes the lilies, and so how could we doubt or even have anxiety that God would not provide for us? Philippians 4.19 says that too. So with, when it comes to Christ, for us as Christians, Jesus not only saves, he supplies. So when he promises to save you, he promises to, to supply your everyday needs as well. And dare I say, even in California... Pastor PJ, I don't know if I'm stepping on any toes here, but um, should I just say it? I'll just say it. You don't have to leave California for God to provide for you. You don't have to join the Texas to do that. So if you're worried about inflation, if you're worried about God providing a job, if you're worried about just God caring for you and putting food on your table, and I understand there are different needs and different uh, circumstances that this may not apply to you but maybe it does if you're doubting whether or not god will supply for you maybe the application is not that you make an extreme life choice or life change but maybe you need more trust in your shepherd because it says what i have what i need that's what david says he, put, he does and shows care through supplied needs. He also shows care through restoration. Look at verses 2 and 3. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Note how verse 2 starts with rest. It doesn't start with motion. It starts with rest and restoration. The grassy place here is a reference to this safe place to rest where the sheep didn't need to move. It was a grassy area for eating and causing the sheep to be satisfied with the food that was provided. You have there, it says, it lets me lie down, or he lets me lie down. Literally, it's God causing the sheep or causing David to lie down, meaning the shepherd is putting the sheep in the right condition to rest. There's this interesting book um, by this author named Philip Keller. It's entitled, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And so this guy who's a pastor, he was actually a literal shepherd for eight years and then became a pastor. So he was a shepherd who turned shepherd. And so he writes this book on Psalm 23 and he gives insight about what it was like to be a shepherd. And he talks about how sheep don't rest well. Sheep have to be set in the right condition to even lie down. And he says there's four ways and four conditions that need to be met for sheep to rest well. They have to be free from all fear, meaning no threat to their life. They have to be free from friction, meaning they have to be comfortable with where they're laying down. They have to be free from flies or parasites, meaning nothing has to be biting them. And then they have to also find food so they can't be hungry. So he says the four F's for sheep to actually rest well, they need to be free from fear, friction, flies, and find food. And do you know who accomplishes this for the sheep? It's the shepherd. The shepherd puts the sheep in the right condition to rest. And oh, saints, isn't that not what God does for us? 
Is God doing that for you today? Because we, especially in America, we do not rest well. We go hard. We're capitalistic. We're, we, we go through the grind. And we almost pride ourselves on the fact that we work our, ourselves to the death. But there are some times where God, through his providence, through other people, through his word, he's even removing things, maybe even removing people from our lives, and he is forcing us to rest. Maybe it's, it's even through sickness and, and physical suffering. He is doing sovereign things to force us to rest because we don't rest well. Maybe that's you today. Removing idols, changing plans. But he does that as a grace and mercy by causing us to lie down in green pastures and leading us to what is called quiet waters. Literally the waters of rest where these were wells and springs that the sheep would go to uh, to drink without being rushed and to quench their thirst. The shepherd would lead them so, uh, here so that they could drink. And this is a, a picture with, with the grassy areas of God's refreshing care for his people. And Christ as the good shepherd does this, right? He, he refreshes us through, through feeding and through the waters, through his word, through fellowship, and through providence. You can say that as, as members of BBC, that you've been refreshed here by receiving the word and receiving good fellowship. You see in verse 3, he says, he renews my life. Uh, some, have, some translated restores my soul to reference to being renewed and refreshed in their spiritual condition. David is looking at God and he's saying, in the midst of my trouble, it is God who brings me back to life. That the suffering has burdened me so much that I feel as though I am spiritually dead or even physically dead. But it's God who brings me back to life. Philip Keller also shares how uh, this relates to the sheep. Sometimes sheep would get so fat and so long fleeced that they would lie down. And in their lying down, they would roll over in such a way to where they can't get back up, almost like a turtle on their back. And so their legs would dangle in the air. And if they do not go back onto their feet in maybe a couple of hours, they would lose blood circulation. They would panic and they would die within those couple of hours. And so it was the job of the shepherd to simply do what? roll over the sheep and literally as a as a shepherd rolls over the sheep the sheep are restored back to life and the idea is is there that the shepherd does that for his people that you on the brink of death you in the deepest darkest discouragement you need the good shepherd through jesus christ to restore you back to life and he does that, as we had just read in, in the Gospel of John, he offers himself as the bread of life, the bread that eternally satisfies and feeds you like nothing else in this world can do. He offers himself as the living water, the eternal refreshment that satisfies your partial soul as so many people in this world are going to many different things to drink and to be satisfied thinking that that will quench their spiritual thirst. They are mistaken because they forget and they don't know maybe that Jesus is the only living water that can quench their thirsty soul. And if you're a non-Christian today, I want to encourage you to embrace that Christ. 
That that is the greatest need of your soul today, to partake of Christ, to drink of that living water, and to find your soul renewed and restored. Because you as a sinner, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You need more than just religion. You need more than just morality. You need new life that comes from the good shepherd who is the living water. It is a beautiful picture of the gospel for Christ to revive our weary souls. Look at verse 3 in this renewal of life. He leads David along the right paths for his namesake. So as David is being renewed by God, David is also thinking about the direction that God has taken him. And and it's interesting for him to, in the midst of suffering, say to God that he is taking him on the right path. You see the language there? This right path is a difference between the right path and the crooked path and the shepherd would always, is his responsibility to bring the sheep on the right path to their destination, to the uh, quiet waters, to the green pastures. And the shepherd would know that way. The shepherd would know the direction. That is encouragement to us, to know that God knows the right way. That sometimes it, it, it might not seem the right way, but we as sheep have to trust the shepherd to guide us in any season because when he says it's the right way, it's the right way. You know, I've gotten lost enough while driving my kids and my wife, well, maybe not lost, but making the wrong turns, right, to where my young kids start to question whether or not I know where I'm going when we start to leave. So we'll sit in our, our minivan, we'll throw in all the kids, I'll put on the Google Maps, and then uh, I'll write it even before I back out in the driveway. One of my kids will be like, Papa, do you know where you're going? <laughs> and I, I guess I've, I've, I've done it enough for her to question whether or not I could take her to the right destination. And in my sinfulness, I just respond like, yes, I know where I'm going. <laughs> but human error, right? Human fathers can sometimes do that, take us to the wrong Place And we can doubt, as my kids sometimes might doubt, whether I'm taking them to the right destination. Not so with God. Sometimes we actually take that same attitude. And when God providentially directs us this way, when we thought we were going this way, we actually say that same question and we say, God, do you know where you're going? God, do you know where you're taking me? Because I thought it was supposed to pan out this way, and you're taking me this way. David probably thought that in his trials. David probably thought that while his son was seeking his life. And I think anyone would question the direction of their life if they're going through such deep suffering. But David says, in the midst of my doubts or what I'm struggling with, God, you are taking me on the right path. So, friends, I want to tell you, if you're, if, if you're a Christian here today and you are doubting whether or not God has taken you on the right path today, I want to tell you now, it is the right path. The grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you stand. And where God has you today is where he has always intended in eternity past to take you. He is glorifying himself through that. He is sanctifying you through how he is taking you through your life, and you have to trust him and believe that the path that he has you on is the right path. 
God has you on the right path, saints. Trust him. Look how verse 3 says it's for his namesake. So his honor and his reputation are at stake. So if he goes back on his word or if he does things that is inconsistent with his character, he knows he's not going to do that because if he backs out on his promises that he has promised to you, his name's at stake. It is all about his glory, not about our comfort, his glory. Because sometimes what's comfortable for us is not consistent with his glory. And so he's saying, you know, we need to realign your life to my glory and for my namesake. And so this might be uncomfortable for you, but I want to tell you now it is the right path. David says, we have to trust this God. So he provides care. Secondly, he also provides comfort. Look at verses 4 through 5. He provides in verse 4 comfort and difficulty. Even when I walk or even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So David is just talking about the right path that God has put him on. And he couples it in verse 4 by talking about how he walks through this path of darkness. Which tells us what? That sometimes the right path is through darkness and near danger. Literally, the, the, the darkest path or darkest valley is death's shadow. So it's a reference to a place of deep darkness where sometimes shepherds would take sheep through deep ravines and canyons where that was actually the location of the quiet waters and the grassy areas to take care of the sheep. So in the midst of them being in the presence of water and, and, and quenching their thirst and getting provided by, uh, with food, they're surrounded by darkness and they're surrounded by danger. And that's what David has here. And these dark canyons would be a place of danger where animals, wild animals would hide behind certain rocks and could pounce on the sheep at a moment's notice. Even in these canyons, floods could happen in a moment's notice. And so the shepherd had to be ready at any moment. And so in the midst of their provisions, they are surrounded by danger. Not what we would think. They had every reason to fear, but he fears not. Um, which kind of tells us also this, that God does his greatest providing in the midst of danger. But look at what David's attitude is. I fear no danger for you are with me. He fears nothing. He has every reason to fear. You might have every reason to fear in the midst of your trials, but he fears not. Why? Because you, God, are with me. It's the personal presence of God that casts out any type of fear for David in the midst of his trials. His trials have not yet been resolved. His difficulties have not subsided and, and been relieved. He is still going through something, and he says, even though I'm going through something, you are with me. His close personal presence shows his protection and calms his anxiety as one of the sheep. But what is his personal presence described as or through? It is through the rod and the staff. David says, your rod and your staff is what comforts me. The word rod 
is a reference to the wooden pole that a shepherd would have to club down the animals to protect the sheep. So this was the, the self-defense weapon of choice for the shepherd so that he could protect the sheep from all types of external dangers. The staff was the long uh, curved walking stick, which was used for reaching and support and would keep the sheep under control. And so if a, uh, one of the sheep would stray and, and, and go a, a way that was not right, he would take the, the, um, the staff and bring that sheep back. So God's personal presence and his constant involvement comes in the form of both protection and correction. We know this in terms of protection already, right? We know that God promises to protect his people. As we're thinking about what's going on in the world, as we're scared about what might happen to us, health-wise, safety-wise, provisions-wise, it is so comforting to know that God promises to protect his people, that Jesus promises to protect us. That even if the trial and the circumstance is so bad that it were to take your life, the security that we hear from Romans chapter 8, that nothing could take us from the love of God, is also part of the protection of the good shepherd. You are secured. The gospel has secured you. It doesn't matter what is happening in your life. You are protected by the power of God. And sometimes that comes in the form of relief in this temporal life. And praise God if that happens. But he promises to deliver. So sometimes we experience that deliverance here. Sometimes we'll experience, or some of us will experience that deliverance later on in eternity. But he's not distant. He is present in trials. But he also shows his presence in discipline. You see that other staff, the the, the, the rod and then the staff is, is meant to, to bring back the sheep. And we see the presence of God also in that. Because what does Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6 says? Jesus or God disciplines those whom he loves. So that means if you're under the discipline of God, he loves you as legitimate children. So we don't have to fight that, Right? We don't have to fight what God is doing in our life in correcting us and disciplining us because even though it's excruciating, even though it's painful, it's actually the most loving thing for us. And God is showing himself present. And it, it doesn't seem like God is present when he is giving us his discipline, but he doesn't discipline us in a cold and, and distant way. He is very personal and he is very loving. And that passage is very clear that when we experience the discipline of God, he is very much loving. Because when we are going this way and we are going after our idols and pursuing the sins that, that, that Christ died for that we should not be going after, yes, it is very painful and very hard when God takes his staff and yanks us back, right? And some of us are going through that. And don't, don't fight God yanking you back to the right path because he is doing something for your good. He is making you more like Christ. So we can't fight the discipline of God to put us back in the right direction. He comforts us not through just difficulty, but look at how David says that God comforts him even before his enemies in verse 5. Verse 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This, in verse 5, is a reference to the shepherd like a dinner host. He is hosting dinner for the sheep with a table with food and drink, a great banquet with rich hospitality like the Krispy Kreme donuts outside. And this is God's generous provision. Uh, And this is important because when we see God providing food for his people, whenever people eat and and, and share a meal at a table, it it implies or it, it, it teaches fellowship, right? There's communion there that takes place. So eating implies an intimate relationship with them. So as he's setting this table with these, his, his sheep, he is displaying his closeness and his intimacy with his people. But note the context. This isn't uh, Pastor PJ just inviting you over for dinner on Sunday night. But this is preparing a table in the presence of who? My enemies. My enemies. God is preparing for David, this table of fellowship in the presence of my enemies. And so what does that mean for God to do this, to, to have such a great banquet of hospitality in the presence of David's enemies? It's a reference to vindication. It's a reference to possibly a victorious celebration banquet where the picture may be that God's enemies are captive. God's enemies are conquered. And they're conquered in such a way to where now these defeated rivals are invited dinner guests. And they're part of this dinner to show that that God has conquered, God has vindicated his people, and now they can all uh, dine and sup together because this conquering shepherd is victorious. So David feels vindicated because no longer as his enemies have pursued him, And continue to pursue him. He is being reminded of the fact that God is in a a victorious posture towards the world. That he will never stop being victorious. That if you feel like things are, are failing in life, failing in our country, you feel like things will fail when you start voting on, was that Tuesday, right? When you feel like just everything around you is failing, God is in a victorious posture and he has no problem celebrating that victory with his people. And he invites his people, like David, to commune with him in the presence of his enemies. And look how he's described as a gracious host too. Um, What does he do do with David? He says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So with this dinner guest uh, illustration, A gracious host, whenever they would have guests, they would anoint them with uh, a special type of oil that would be very soothing. And it would symbolize uh, just a a form of welcoming and refreshment and rejoicing in prosperity. And so when anyone was ever anointed with oil, it was a a sign of great abundant blessing. And and so David is experiencing this from God. If you look at the the shepherd idea, an ancient shepherd would actually mix uh, just olive oil and sulfur and anoint the sheep to protect them from insects and even to promote healing from infection. So this oil is something that was such a, a representation of God's blessing to David in the midst of him being persecuted by his enemies. 
And so it's encouraging for David to know that even though his enemies are seeking after his life, even though he is, he is in the midst of, of those who are hostile towards him, he can still experience God's great blessing even though people are hostile towards him. Saints, are you experiencing hostility today? In your workplace? In your family? In your immediate family? Your closest friends? Social media? When you post something controversial, right? I'm looking at PJ because he always posts the controversial stuff. That's right, brother. In the midst of your social media enemies, God anoints you with oil. Praise God. Post away. And, and he, he says this too. My cup, what? Overflows. It's not just filled halfway. It's not just filled the adequate amount. His cup is what? Overflowing. And so this is a drink at a banquet that symbolized grace and abundant blessing. And so the idea of over, overflowing is, is the... the the person who is hospitable in hosting the honored guest is not being stingy. But he or she is giving and, 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 and giving and, and, and providing in such a way that this person's cup is overflowing. This host is giving the best to their guests. So, kids, um, would you invite your friends to your birthday parties, right? You want to give especially if the birthday party's at your house or if you're hosting it, you want to give the best food, right? You want to give the best food to your friends because they came to your birthday party and they gave you that toy that you asked them to give you, right? And uh, when you do that, you don't, you don't serve just any type of food or give them any type of party favor. You're not asking mom to serve them leftover frozen vegetables, right? Or spam. That's a Tuesday night for me. You don't just give any type of whatever food. You give the best pizza, the best burgers, the best giveaways. Because they are your guests. They are honored guests. And I want to tell you now that God reserves the best for his people. But what's the context in which he reserves his best being persecuted by his enemies, going through the deepest suffering. Friends, you know what this tells us as Christians? That God does not bless you despite your troubles or despite your suffering. God actually blesses you through your suffering. That you would not be uniquely blessed by God in your life unless you had gone through your difficulty. So you can actually say prayers of thanksgiving for your trials and for your difficulty because you know what God is doing? He is saying, I am uniquely blessing you through this trial and I would not bless you in this way unless it were for this trial. He reserves his best for his people. God can bless you in adversity. And we think about this theologically. In the return of Christ, there will be a future banquet. Right? When we think about, when we do partake of communion later, it's not just a past recollection, recollection of what Jesus has done. It's not just a present understanding of what he has done for us and what it is doing for us today, but it's also a what? A future 
uh, uh, understanding and remembering of the fact that we will sup with him again in the future. And that also will be a victorious banquet. That will be a victorious banquet because sin and suffering will be no more. Enemies will be no more. And that we will enter into his kingdom and celebrate and worship with him and fellowship together without any type of interruption. And that will be a wonderful vindication. And our cup overflowing is an important reminder that when God blesses you, he doesn't just bless you to the, to the bare minimum. He blesses you tremendously. And he blesses you with your cup overflowing so that you can actually bless others as well. And that's why you are a member of Bethany Baptist Church. If you have experienced the abundant blessing of God and your cup is overflowing, who are you pouring into? In discipleship? In using your spiritual gifts at this church? Because God does not pour into you just for you to keep to yourselves. He pours, he pours into you abundant blessing so that you can pour into other people. That is gospel discipleship. And so God, not only as the shepherd provides care, not just comfort, but look in verse 6 how he provides confidence. Look at verse 6. Look at his confidence in the first half in God's pursuit of us. It says, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. The term goodness is very appropriate to describe the shepherd. God has already shown his goodness in this psalm. So the psalm defines God as good through his provisions, through him restoring, through him guiding, through him giving courage, comfort, protection, and danger, vindication from his enemies, and blessing him abundantly. All of these things that we had just talked about relate and, is, and illustrate the fact that God is abundantly good. And that he is good and does good in all that he does. So his goodness is present. His goodness is evident in this psalm. And is, is, it's not just his goodness that David ends this verse with or the, ends this psalm with. He says, only goodness and faithful love. It's that word loving kindness that we're so familiar with. The, the, his covenant loyalty, his loyal love, his covenant commitment. It's a steadfast dependability describing who God is. So not only is he good, he's faithful in doing that good. He is faithful to us in his promises. And that's what David is clinging to because in his times of difficulty, in his times of trials, it is easy for him to doubt the goodness of God. It is easy for him to doubt whether or not God is being faithful to his promises because when you're going through suffering, one of the things that go into your mind is, is God, what you're doing for me, is that actually good? Because it doesn't feel good right now. And it doesn't look good. Nothing that I see in my life is looking good right now. So God, how can you say that you're good and how can you bring good from this? And how can you say you're keeping your promises? How can you say that you are a loving, loyal God to me when I'm going through such hardship and suffering? See, David is no different from us. 
what we think about and what we struggle with in suffering is exactly what David is, is going through. And so know this, saints, that when he is saying this to himself, when he is preaching this to himself and, 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 and to the readers and those who are singing this psalm, he is expressing a confidence that he needs and a reminder that he needs in the midst of suffering. That God is good and that God is faithful. And I want to tell you that today. That if you are here on this Sunday and you are doubting those two characteristics of God, his goodness and his faithful love, you don't have to doubt. You don't have to fear. He is good and he is faithful. And in, look at what goodness and faithful love are doing. They're actually doing something in verse 6. What are they doing? He says, they will pursue me, David says, all the days of my life. So this is a pursuit. David is possibly being chased by his enemies. So David knows what it feels like to be pursued, not in a good way, uh, by someone where they're seeking to harm him. And you know how that feels. You know how it feels when you have people who are trying and planning to harm you. And David has experienced that even maybe to a physical level where he's being pursued by his enemies and they will not stop until he's dead. But in the midst of him being pursued by his enemies, do you know that someone else is pursuing him? It's God. God specifically through his goodness and his faithful love. So not only are they just remote qualities that David, it's not just remote qualities that David is just admiring, but the, his, his love and his faithfulness, God has them actively pursuing and chasing after David in the midst of his trials. And this is so encouraging to know that these qualities, these things about God, his goodness and his loyal love, they are pursuing us as Christians as well. My young kids, my two older daughters are six and four, and they love playing tag, and they are good at it. They are good at it, and I am not good at it. <laughs> my kids will not stop until they tag me. I can run as fast as I can, which is not very fast, and they are so good at it that they will not stop until they get me. And I just feel like when I see goodness and faithful love described as that, as, as a pursuit, I think of that. That with whatever you're going through, with whatever your trials, with whatever you're suffering from, that God's goodness and his faithful love will not stop until it gets you. And guess what? You don't want to run away from that. You want, you, want, you want to embrace it when God is, is showering you with his goodness and he is showering you with his faithful love. That is something that you want to catch you. And so if we want to use the, the shepherd illustration, almost look at like goodness and faithful love as like the sheep dogs that are herding the sheep back to where they need to be. They're, they are herding us to where we need to be. And, and so we want to experience God's faithful love and his goodness and, and, and he says it's all the days of his life, meaning the, literally the length of days that God has committed to, to give goodness and loyal love to David his whole life. 
God does not promise these things to you in a particular season of life. He's not promising it just for a short time. It is promised for your whole life that this pursuit will never end. So these goodness and faithful love are like lifelong friends and, and, and BFFs. They will always be there for you in any season. If you're feeling alone today, you don't have to feel alone anymore. God promises to be with you in any season. Not only is it confidence in, his God's, in God's pursuit, but it's confidence in God's fellowship. Look at how he ends this psalm. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. David valued God's house. Could be a reference to the tabernacle or maybe the temple if they're reading this at a later time. Either way, it represents God's dwelling place and where God is. As he has a localized presence in the community of, of the people in Israel, his presence there showed his nearness to them. And he was close to them. And um, David knows the importance of being in the presence of God. It's everything to him. That's why he says in Psalm 27, verse 4, if you want to turn there. Psalm 27, verse 4. He says, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. David's greatest passion in his life, even especially in his suffering, is to be where God is, to be in the presence of God. And so he's wanting this more conscious nearness of God. And all he wanted to do is live in God's presence and be in fellowship with him. That's why it, it, the verse ends with, as long as I live. Some translations have forever. Um, the translation, as long as I live, literally refers to the length of days, his whole life. That his whole life, he wants to be in the presence of God. But theologically, we know this to be true, that even as Christians, we will be in the presence of God, not just today, but forever because of what Jesus has done. Israel knew what it was like to look for a home. They were always on the move. Uh, some of you are like that. Maybe you're, you're in between houses or apartments. You're just always on the move. You just want to find that place to, to settle down. Israel knew what it was like to look for a home, and David knows that the shepherd will ultimately take him home. But David does not look at home as a particular place, which it will be. He doesn't just isolate a particular land location, but it is representative of the fact that God is his home. So wherever God is, he feels home. Wherever he is with God, wherever the good shepherd is with you, you can be at home. And isn't that such a nice feeling to be home? Um, as great as the retreat was, I'm sure you, you're happy to be home, right? You go out and um, do nice road trips, even vacations. Maybe you're gone on a work trip and you're just tired and exhausted, or maybe you're with your spouse or your kids, and you're just saying, guys, I just want to go home. I'm so tired from whatever we're doing. The best thing for us now is just to go take a beeline straight home. And you might feel that way today, just like David, 
where your suffering and your trials are so great and so difficult, where all you're longing for is to go home. You know that this is not your home. As comfortable and, and wonderful as, as Bethany is, this is not your home. Our home is with Christ. Our home is in heaven. And friends, if you are longing for that, Christ promises, as he says, he is coming quickly. He promises to take us home. And that is so encouraging to us because, as we had read earlier, John 10 reminds us that Christ is the good shepherd. He, as the good shepherd, will welcome us home. If you're not a Christian today, he wants you to be saved so that you could be at home with him. Repent. Trust in Christ. Turn from your idols. Turn from worshiping and loving yourself as ultimate. And, and trust in Christ. Believe in him. Follow after him. He will take us home. He laid down his life for the sheep. And he will take it up again. The sheep recognize him, as John 10 says, as the shepherd. And we follow after him. We love him. And as a result of that, we receive eternal life from him. And the, the greatest thing, as, as David is reflecting on this in a similar fashion, is we will never perish, as John 10 says. We will never perish because no one will ever snatch the sheep out of the good shepherd's hand. Do you know that you are in the hands of Jesus? Friends, do you believe that today? That in your trials, in your hardships, you are in the hands of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the good shepherd. We thank you for Christ and the comfort that he gives to us, providing our needs, providing abundantly and blessing us even in trials, even in the midst of our enemies. You are displaying your goodness and faithful love to us. Never stop that, God. Help us when we doubt. Help us when we distrust. We pray for those who still do not know Christ as this shepherd, that they would see how good this shepherd is and how much they are missing out. Cause them to repent and believe in you and bless us as we live our lives under the submission of this shepherd. Guide us and care for us. We pray for this as God's people say, amen. 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 It's the regular practice of our church to share takeaways after we hear God's word preached. If you're a guest of our church, if you have no obligation to share, you can just introduce yourself to those talking around you. But we're going to do that now. We're going to take the next three minutes to share what God has pressed on you through his word.
Thank you guys for sharing your takeaways. God is going to speak to us now through his word. So we're going to continue sharing after the gathering ends. Hear God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. We're going to take the Lord's Supper now. And before we take the Lord's Supper, Paul has a warning for us. Listen to his warning. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is a family meal. This is a dangerous meal. Paul here is saying, if you eat this bread without examining yourself, you're actually eating judgment on yourself. So it's a dangerous meal to be eating. At the same time, look, it's not only examining yourself, but you also want to recognize the body. And I think what we mean by that is to recognize that this supper is for those who understand themselves to be sinners. So if you don't understand yourself to be a sinner, this, this meal is not for you. And not only is it for those who understand themselves to be sinners, but for those who have turned from their sins and turned to Jesus. So if you haven't repented from your sins and trusted in Jesus, this meal is not for you. Not only that, but it's for those who are baptized members of a gospel-preaching church by what they understand baptism to mean. So if you're not a baptized member of a gospel-preaching church, this meal is not for you. But we want this meal to be for you. So if you haven't turned for your sins, please do. If you haven't gotten baptized, please do. If you haven't joined the church, please join the church. But until then, please, we're exhorting you, refrain from this meal. Before we take this meal, we're going to pull out our bulletins. And on page 11, we're going to recite our church covenant together. So if you're a member of this church, please stand. If you're not a member of this church, please stay seated. As our church is renewing our covenant with one another, these are the vows that we've agreed to do as we join this church. Please do this with your own local church. Or as you're looking for a church, please think about this as uh, uh, something you want to look for in a church. So the members of Bethany Baptist Church, let's renew our covenant with one another. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God, in this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We promise, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to give it sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to attend its gatherings, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to support of the ministry, to the church, the relief of the poor, to spread the gospel through all nations.